Greetings, listeners, and welcome to the Pop Apocalypse. I'm your host, Matthew Dillon. And before we dive in, I want to say, how about that intro music? Uh, my sincere thanks and gratitude to Trace Bruins of Secret Chiefs 3 for allowing us to use the songs The Owl in Daylight and The End Times, both of which come off their mind-blowing album, Book of Horizons. If you're listening to this, and you're not familiar with Secret Chiefs, you're going to like them. So I highly recommend you just jump on whatever your streamer is and take them for a spin. You can dive in anywhere. It's all fabulous. Today, we welcome Lawrence Kirwana to the show. Lawrence is a visionary artist, teacher, novelist, historian of ideas, and many other things. After growing up in Canada and then graduating from the University of Toronto, Lawrence lived as an itinerant artist, bouncing from places like Malta and Paris to Munich and Vienna. He apprenticed under the great artist Ernst Fuchs and has trained countless artists in the techniques he learned from him, both independently and through the Vienna Academy of Visionary Art, which he ran and taught at from 2013 to 2020 when the global pandemic began. Lawrence is the author of several books, including The Manifesto of Visionary Art, Enter Through the Image, the novel The Secret Passion, and most recently, Sacred Codes. Now, I first came upon Lawrence's work while researching my dissertation, uh, which was on the religious reception of the Nagamati Codices in the 20th and 21st centuries. Now, while Lawrence does not claim to be a scholar, uh, and he doesn't read the texts like a scholar, he knows those primary sources as well as any layperson I encountered while working on the project. And we're talking hundreds of case studies. Lawrence is also an ideal pairing with Alex and Alison Gray. Those three artists have known each other for about 20 years. With the Vienna Academy and now the Apocryphon Chapel, which we talk about towards the end of the interview, Lawrence has helped foster the sort of visionary art community that the Grays did with Chapel of Sacred Mirrors. As you'll hear in the conversation, Lawrence brings incredible depth and thoughtfulness to the ideas we are most interested in on this podcast. The place of the spiritual in art, how Gnostic experience reflects the experience of creating and meditating on art, how scholars of esotericism have impacted contemporary culture, the ontology of the imagination, and much, much more. It's a great conversation. I hope you all enjoy. So it is my immense pleasure to have on Lawrence Caruana, uh, who wears many hats, uh, author, artist, historian, lecturer, teacher, et cetera, et cetera. Um, where are you podcasting from? Because I see this amazing print behind you. It sort of feels like you're coming from the Pleroma, right? You're sort of appearing. <laughs> up. Thank you. I'm in my studio and mm -hmm. my studio is this gabled chamber. I have kind of a gabled roof and the painting that you see behind me reaches up to the ceiling. So it's three meters tall. And uh, I moved back here 
about uh, three years ago in 2020 because of the pandemic. And mm -hmm. I had spent seven years in Vienna before that. But we always had this farmhouse out in the Burgundy region of France. And so I'm speaking to you from my studio, basically. Oh, wonderful. So we will wind our way through your trajectory and arrive in France and then talk about the painting that you have behind you towards the end here. But I wanted to start with your background as a visionary artist. Uh, specifically, uh, you studied under one of the great sort of surrealist visionary artists, Ernst Fuchs. And I was wondering, how did you come to meet Ernst? Uh, and uh, in what ways did working under him end up guiding or catalyzing some of your later work? Mm -hmm. Meeting him was one of the most fortuitous moments of my lifetime in terms of my path as an artist, because I am born in Toronto, grew up in Toronto, studied there, and I had no idea how I would ever learn classical techniques of painting from someone who is really a master of those techniques. And I did manage to fund myself to get to Vienna for a year when I was in my late 20s, 27, 28. And in Vienna, I discovered his work. This is before the time of the internet, so it wasn't mm -hmm. easy to just access it online. And it was a revelation to see his work. It really set me on my path. But uh, I came back to Toronto. I moved to Europe. And, you know, fast forward about five years later, I'm living in Paris with my wife. And I'm still very intrigued by the work of this man and his technique. And on my own, I'm trying to figure it out, uh, figure out the technique that he uses, which is a combination of egg tempera and oils and varnish and so on. And at the same time, the whole visionary aspect of his work, which I was seeing, was very intriguing and important to me. What happened then is when I was 38 years old in the year 2000, uh, a friend of mine happened to be working with him in a chapel in the south of Austria. And he, this friend of mine, uh, said, you should come and work with us here in this chapel. So I dropped everything, went from Paris straight to south of Austria, and met Ernst Fuchs that evening. I had a, a painting of mine with me that I brought along. And basically he and I hit it off very fast that uh, he could see right away from my work the painting I brought with me and the work I was doing and the conversations that we had that somehow there was a really strong connection so I ended up uh, working there in this chapel in the south of Austria for a couple of months and then apprenticing with him uh, he had studios at this time in Monaco and outside of Monaco a place called Castillon in the south of France so even though he's from Vienna and is mostly known in Vienna and has a museum of, uh, of his work in Vienna basically uh, I worked with him in in the south of France and that was really for me the time in which I became in my mind an apprentice to a master and I was happy about that. In other words, I think in the contemporary art tradition, we don't speak of masters and apprentices anymore. But I was very much of the mindset that I wanted to uh, become a link in the chain of transmission of these classical techniques of painting. And what I discovered during the time I was working with him 
is that uh, it's also not just the transmission of techniques, which are very, very important, but the way those techniques develop vision. And so this whole idea of visionary art, and I actually wrote the, something called the Manifesto of Visionary Art, the time that I was working with him in the year 2000, 2001, as a way to put it together in my own mind, what is mm -hmm. this visionary art, which is something that I kind of uh, came across as a term, Alex Gray, another artist had used it, but it's not, it wasn't a very common term in the year 2000. And so uh, that's where I started on my visionary path as an artist, um, in the sense that he gave me a clarity of direction in what to do. And now it, it seems obvious, you know, that um, there is this thing called visionary art where there's hundreds of people practicing it and so on. We can get into that. Mm -hmm. But Ernst Fuchs was very much uh, for me the inspiration to follow this path and use this technique called the Mish technique that uh, I use and I teach to my students as well. Wonderful, wonderful. So I want to drill down a bit and then ask, so what is the visionary? What is, what makes this particular art form visionary as opposed to something else? What sort of keeps it, this tradition or this cohort of art, artists bound mm -hmm. together? Yeah. Uh, you know, one thing I often do is uh, make a quick distinction between psychedelic art mm -hmm. and visionary art because there is an overlap that psychedelics uh, can be a part of visionary art, but the purpose of the art is not specifically to capture those states that we uh, experience with psychedelics. Visionary is more broader a term, and it really goes deep into the idea that the visionary realm is, uh, is exists and that we can access it and that uh, the art itself is is working with the visionary realm. And uh, in my experience, because now I've uh, taught many students, and so I've encountered many artists, young, late teenagers in their 20s, all the way up until their 50s, 60s, 70s, um, people access the visionary realm in different ways. And some people are very gifted. Uh, some people maybe have a strong imagination. Uh, in, in my case, what I've come to realize is uh, that our cultural bias towards the imagination is something that prevents us sometimes from uh, respecting the images that emerge within our own consciousness or unconsciousness. So um, lately, my reading is tending towards uh, Henri Corbin and the Mundus Imaginalis and mm -hmm. this idea. And I've come to really respect this idea that there is this intermediary realm where uh, we can access the, the visions. And we do it through dreams, we do it through the imagination, we do it through guided visualizations. One of my stranger practices is, is that I uh, meditate or mm -hmm. contemplate paintings. And by that, I mean, I will sit still in the same way that a meditator sits still. But rather than sitting still with my eyes 
closed or half closed, I have them open and I'm gazing at a sacred image and mm -hmm. I'm entering into a state which allows me to find a place of stillness. And when I do that, the painting, which is the support, ceases to be a painting. And you kind of see through the painting. I use the expression from the Nag Hammadi texts. I enter through the image. And once I enter through the image, I enter into this visionary realm. It's mm -hmm. It can be uh, still, but I, I become more interested in the way it moves. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. uh, and the reason why I say that is because when I think about the Mundus Imaginalis, um, I think of Plato and his idea of the realm of the I-Day, the realm of beings and archetypes. And usually he describes that as stilled, the realm of being, in contrast to the realm of becoming. And the material world of becoming goes through generation and corruption. And so there's a lot of movement within the, the, the realm of becoming. Now, for me, the Mundus Imaginalis is that intermediate realm between being and becoming, being very still and becoming being in movement. So that you're in a place where uh, it feels timeless, it feels expansive, you know, it feels like childhood where uh, there's no measures of time or space or conceptualizations that limit you. But it's still um, such that things happen. And I give mm. the example that the lion devours the lamb, but neither feels hunger or pain. And that the lion can become the lamb, the lamb can become the lion. And we free ourselves in this realm, in this intermediary realm, from uh, our, ourself, you know, mm -hmm. the sense of I, and, and uh, we just simply become everything that's there. Uh, I'll, I'll go deeper into it in this conversation because it gets kind of deep, but that gives you mm -hmm. a taste of, of what visionary is for me now in my kind of uh, development as a visionary artist. And all of the visionary artists I know, they have their practice, they have their way, they have their access to those realms. And then they're bringing it out into their paintings and bring their paintings out into the world. And many people then see those paintings and relate to it. Mm -hmm. But we're in a different um, place because the art market, the art world, and this idea of buying a painting and putting it on the wall or putting it in a gallery or putting it in a museum, we're trying to subvert that total paradigm. And what I mean is uh, sacred art always had a much different purpose mm -hmm. in other cultures. And we see ourselves as creating sacred art, art that transforms the viewer, that transforms their perception, that gives them a different way of relating to their own life. So, of course, we had to put a price or dollar value on what we're doing, but we're not playing the art market game. We're, we're just in the process of, of creating these sacred images and the way people respond to those sacred images is, is what we're doing as artists.
Excellent. It's really interesting to hear you bring up Corban. Uh, mm -hmm. in that we just held a conference about Corban here last year. And in addition to, you know, people like Elliot Wolfson and Jeff Kripal giving presentations on him, Walter Honecroft, we uh, also found, or this is particularly my dear friend Hadi Fakuri, that his impact on, by which I mean Corban, his impact on the arts is massive. Right. So you we brought in a uh, another painter whose name skips me now. We brought in a playwright who was deeply inspired by him. And the most exciting part, personally, having um, Trace Bruins from Secret Chiefs 3, whose work mm -hmm. is just filled with references to Corban, which is formed based on Corban. He also does the intro music and outro music for this podcast. It always stuns me to hear the the sort of rich reverberations that Corban's thought and work have had in the art realm. And if I yeah. can mention this is uh, the way it works for me as an artist is uh, Alex Gray had mm -hmm. the, the, the essay, the imaginary and the imaginal, I believe mm -hmm. it's called. Uh, he photocopied it. This is 20 years ago, photocopied it, sent a copy to uh, Andrew Gonzalez. He used the painter who invited me in the end to go, to Klagenfurt to work with Ernst Fuchs. And Andrew Gonzalez photocopied it and sent it to me. You know, we were passing around photocopies of the Henri Corbin because it was like, you have to check this out. This is really something yeah. <laughs> interesting and different and special and, and unusual to take the imaginary so seriously that, that it becomes the imaginal, you know, it becomes a whole other realm of being for us to exist in. And, and I think that uh, in, in our culture, it was this, uh, how can I say, underground uh, mm -hmm. radical concept that we were vibing with to, 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 to continue in our work. And, and as a visionary artist, I think you can see the correspondence between, say, Corbin's writing and what we're doing. Absolutely. It, I like that idea of, you know, photocopied Corban being passed around from hand to hand like secret wisdom you know yeah. that's really wonderful uh so I want to get back or stay as it is within this realm this realm of the imaginal um but come at it from a different path uh specifically dreams mm -hmm. so in uh your great book enter through the image you wrote extensively uh, about your experiments with dream work uh, how you've kept a dream journal for what forty plus years now? Um, mm -hmm. Thirty, yeah. Uh, so, this is going to be a very big question. So, you know, bite whatever part you can into it. Uh, how do you understand dreams work now? What is their nature? What is their epistemology? Yeah, I mean, I definitely have read a lot. I've researched dreams and the different approaches to dream work and so on. And you can't ignore the pioneers like Freud and Jung. And I still hold both of those in high esteem. Um, you know, I'm less interested in the cognitive science, scientific approach and, and things like that. What happened to me is... Uh, it was actually Joseph Campbell and reading his work that gave me a key that that was kind of missing from the others. And the key was this, that he is interested in mythology and in the uh, similarities between mythology and, and the dream world. 
And he realized that in our culture, Campbell, that what's missing is rites of passage to move from one life stage to another. And he very often talks about uh, thresholds, you know, and the hero's adventure, the hero crosses over uh, a threshold of adventure, a threshold of initiation, and so on. So I started to think about that and how dreams provide us with those kind of initiations and threshold crossings that we don't really have in our culture anymore, in the sense that when an adolescent has to become an adult in more primordial or tribal societies, they undergo a, a, a traumatizing uh, rite of passage, which makes it clear that they're no longer a child or youth and have now moved into adulthood. And uh, I, I believe that that initiation was like a kind of a death and rebirth that you cannot really go back to the person you were before. Whereas the neurotic in our culture, and we are a neurotic culture, is the one who can't let go of the traumas in their childhood or whatever, and is kind of stuck and unable to move forward across these life thresholds. So dreams, as I looked at my own dreams uh, over and over again, the most important dreams, of course, you can have hundreds of dreams and half of them can be nonsensical or mm -hmm. Um, but the most important were Titanic dreams were the ones that were concerned with the life threshold crossing that I was confronting at that moment in my life. And I don't say crossing it because I was just confronting it. I was moving up against it again and again and again. And so in my 20s, this was both the, the marriage threshold and the profession threshold. You know, what will I do with my life? Will I find a partner? And that was the main focus of my dreams. And then as I eventually got married and uh, had a source of, I became sure, let's say, of my path in life, my, my vocation, you know, then it was having a child, building a home. These became more thresholds. Uh, now I'm in, I've just turned 61 and I'm confronting death all around me. You know, my brother died, uh, my my mother died a few years ago. Mm. And, I, you know, I, I just have to cross over those thresholds of, of people close to me passing away. So I believe that each stage of life has its threshold crossings, illness. And, and when we look at dreams, it's like I'm intrigued by the fact that usually dreams do have narrative structures. Uh, very, a well-formulated dream has a narrative structure where it often brings us to an image that is very close to the threshold that we're confronting right now. And I call that a threshold image. And very mm -hmm. often we wake up uh, just as we come upon that threshold image, as if the dream is saying, okay, here it is, here's where you are, you have to do the rest. Um, in the book that you mentioned, Enter Through the Image, uh, I've become fascinated by this idea of an image language and that mm. dreams as well as art and myth uh, play with an image language, which is to say that we're able to think through images in ways that are different from the way we think through words. And I've often asked myself, so what is the grammar or the logic 
of this image language. And towards the end of the book, I start to look at the various ways in which dreams put the images together. And it's quite fascinating how there can be, for example, a, a regression where uh, even though we're moving forward in time in the dream, as we go from, say, one room to the next, we're going in a temporal regression into our own lives. Or there's juxtapositions, you know, Freud talks about condensation. Um, and so how, how things are juxtaposed, which seems strange at first, but then we realize there's actually a kind of poetic relationship between those two different things that have come together in the dream. And I can go on, but, mm -hmm. but it, there's a whole language of dreaming, which can come out in painting, can come out in a storytelling film, you name it, uh, when we're sensitive to the way in which we think through images in dreams. Oh, that was very, very rich. Thank you. So, but the idea of a language in a syntax and these images come together in, in a certain form implies a speaker, right? Somebody who uses the language, somebody who is putting those things in narrative. So I'm wondering how have you reflected on this idea of what is it in me? What is it in general that's bringing these images together in that way? And mm. if it's helpful or interesting to you, how does that relate to the experience you have when you enter through the image of a canvas, go through the painting and find yourself in an imaginal realm, right? Mm. So are is the person behind that dream language similar to the person inside that imaginal realm or, or different? Mm. <laughs> it's funny, but I, I can't, uh, in the same way that we're overlapping with Henri Corbin, mm -hmm. is we're also overlapping with uh, Charles Stang and his book, The Divine Double. Absolutely. Because I've been reading that book and I've, it's just one of those books that has put together so many pieces of other things that I've seen. And it's like, of course, you know, uh, why didn't we see this before? So this idea of a divine double or a higher self is, again, one of those things that when you see it, it explains so much. And now I realize that the one speaking through the dreams is the higher self, the divine double. That would be my short answer. But let me give an example. I, I mentioned that I met Ernst Fuchs, my master, mm -hmm. and this was thanks to another artist and, and so on. There's a longer side to that whole story, which I have trouble understanding. And this is the fact that he started, Ernst Fuchs started showing up in my dreams a good 10 or 12 years before I met him in person. And it was a whole series of interconnected dreams where, where one dream would end off, a new one would carry on from there months or years later. And at the time, I kept on interpreting it by saying to myself, oh, he's just kind of a ideal that you have in your head of an artist and so it's just a reflection of yourself you know and I was interpreting it in that way meanwhile I was given details in those dreams where um, for example I'm told by a member of his family that I should go to such and such a cafe to to meet him and then the dream ends and then I'm going towards the cafe in another dream 
And finally, I see him, he stands up, we shake hands, the dream ends. Next dream, you know, he's inviting me to come to uh, his place where he works, right? And I find myself standing on this metal mezzanine over his studio, and I'm now working with him as his apprentice. And this all happened years before I met him. Now, when I did finally meet him and I went to his studio, which I'd never been to before, uh, it wasn't a metal mezzanine, but he had this marble balcony that overlooks his own studio. And I was standing there and thinking to myself, how is it possible that I'm now in this place, which I only dreamt of before, not in precise details, but in enough of a way you know, because also every time I met him, when we shook hands, he would kind of look over his glasses and give me this mm -hmm. look that, that just reminded me immediately of, 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 you know, shaking his hand in the dream. Mm -hmm. And uh, we talked about it and he said, yes, he shows up in lots of people's dreams. <laughs> but uh, but uh, before he's I, met them. So, yes, yes. oh, wow. wow. So he's, he's a dream roamer. Painted people that he would meet later, which is interesting. Yeah. Oh, that that's fascinating. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so once and what I learned from him is to open myself up to to let go of that rational side of myself, which is very strong, mm -hmm. and open myself up to the imaginal possibilities of things. And so, for example, those dreams then that I had, the series of dreams, where I was being a bit Jungian about it and saying, oh, it's just kind of persona and mm -hmm. ego projection and, and, and so on. It was like, well, no, I mean, things can actually happen in the imaginal realm that we don't understand at a rational level. And maybe it is uh, our higher self, maybe it is our divine double, who's got this overview of our life that we don't have because we're mm -hmm. down here doing the work. And who's giving us, uh, sending us, you know, these messages and so on from, from the dream world. And so I, I do approach my own dreams now with a much more open mind in the sense that any way I try to interpret them, there is only going to be like, like an augury, you know, you get half of what the augury is telling you, and then it reveals its other half once the event has, has occurred. Yeah, and that's the true nature of auguries, I think. Uh, we can go a lot of different directions from here, but one of the things that I wanted to be sure to ask, so this visionary realm, the imaginal, timeless self, divine double, within more popular discourse these days, tends to bring us to the subject of entheogens or psychedelics, mm. right? Mm. And so you've reflected many times on the use of sacred substances in your life and work. Uh, the first thing I wanted to ask, though, is... What brought you to them at a relatively late age? Yeah, 33, I would 33. say. 33. Uh, in, in the sense that I had experimented before, but it was more uh, a childish kind of, mm. you know, oh, look, the music sounds different and <laughs> things are funny. And uh, yeah, so in other words, at the age of 33, I had a, a transformational experience that set me on that changed my path in life and set me on that path ever since mm. and i think then it, it it was 
the case, I have to put it in context. I was in Munich. I was living on my own. It was, I guess, the year 1993. So again, without the internet, you're very much isolated when it comes to those kind of experiences. This intense mystical experience, you can turn to books mm -hmm. to find other you know, historical people who've experienced such things, but you're not going to bump into someone in the street who's had such a profound mystical experience. And then when, uh, as a painter, though, uh, it took me a while, but I did eventually find other painters who had had the similar kind of experience. And again, it was this process of sharing in a whispered way, you know, what had occurred to us because it seemed so out of this world. Mm. And I, I think it was important for me that I was 33 because my ego had kind of solidified by that mm -hmm. point in time that I, I uh, was more, I can't say I was a wandering artist, so I didn't have that much structure or grounding, but at least I had the maturity to to be able to experience a complete dissolution of the ego without being traumatized by it mm. uh, and instead it was an opening up to the divine an opening up to and, and this is the mystical part the, the ultimate oneness of all things and and i i've come to we're gonna have to of course come to the subject of uh, the Gnostic texts, because yeah. those were the ones that explained it to me the best, and, and this, this transformational way of looking at things. But just to continue on the subject of uh, entheogens, so by the time uh, the internet came around in the year 2000, it was quite revolutionary, because now all those closet entheonauts were reaching out to each other across the net. And I was very much a part of that. And one of the first spokespersons on the internet as an artist who was saying, yes, this is important to me. Mm. And at the same time, I was uh, going along that path, you know, having followed the path of dreams up until mm -hmm. then. Now I was willingly trying LSD, trying mescaline, trying uh, ayahuasca. and um allowing the uh transformations that occur to happen in my life yeah it, because each one of those became a, a a a change in my direction in my path you know it's not just a simple like oh let's do this for fun yeah it, it was more that i knew and i did it ceremoniously and ceremonially in the sense that um with deep intention and so on that that each time it became a kind of a revelation mm -hmm. and a life-changing experience and so so i can kind of document the steps you know uh, of going mm -hmm. from this one to that one to that one uh to arrive at where i'm at now and, and i'm still on that path i have to say Interesting. So let's uh, uh, transition just a little bit. You brought up the Nag Hammadi Library and mm -hmm. these ancient Gnostic texts. Mm -hmm. And so we initially met, or I first came upon your work while uh, researching what at that time was my dissertation, Reception History of the Nag Hammadi Library. And I mean, I have read way too much, hundreds of authors, right, uh, for this book and 
watched countless, you know, documentaries, podcast, listened to podcasts, etc. And I still don't think there's somebody who is as deeply saturated in the texts as you, uh, in the sense that you've very clearly spent a lot of time with them and thought them through and, and understand them on a very deep level. So I want to know what was it that spoke to you so deeply about the Nagamadi Library and these Gnostic texts when you first found them? What was that moment like? How did that sort of serve as a gateway into, you know, everything that's come after. Mm. And it happens in stages. And mm. uh, the earliest stage, which we we talked about this for your thesis, mm -hmm. I grew up in a very Catholic environment. My parents coming from Malta, a Mediterranean island, and the Catholicism in that culture is very pervasive. It's very strong. Mm -hmm. And I went to church every Sunday. So I grew up with this very strong, uh, now I call it a mythology, mm -hmm. but at the time it was a worldview that surrounded me. And that Catholicism became constricting by the time I was in my early 20s. Mm -hmm. And I was able to use, I was studying philosophy at university, and I even studied uh, hermeneutics and biblical interpretation in my final years. And that allowed me to change my perception of those sacred texts to understand that they were texts, you know, then they were, could be interpreted as literature or mythology, but still I was struggling. And the when I came across the uh, Gnostic texts, which were just grouped in as non-canonical mm -hmm. versions of the life of Christ, I, it gave me that passage out, that little doorway, mm -hmm. and it was a heretical one, and I interpreted it as heretical, but in a good way. You know, mm -hmm. the heresy was exactly what I needed to be a little bit rebellious while still being still within that Christian outlook. Um, I tried to become an atheist, and I didn't succeed. <laughs> uh, you know, intellectually, I tried to be an atheist, but but in my soul, I still felt uh, and dreamt and and so on the that that Catholic world in which I had emerged. So, what the Nakamadi text did over time is they allowed me to continue living within that Mediterranean world. Uh, of my ancestors while broadening it and broadening it. Now I can see, you know, towards ancient Egyptian or hermetic or alchemical or, or even tantric kind of traditions, which uh, were still moving through the entire Christian framework or Judeo-Christian framework. And uh now, as I continue to move through life, I, I have to stress something, which is is that I, I, as an artist, I respect all sacred traditions and try and work within mm -hmm. all sacred traditions. And so I don't see myself exclusively as Gnostic, but I keep on finding in the Gnostic texts explanations for things that I don't find elsewhere. And, uh, you know, to give another important example was this expression entered through the image mm -hmm. which appears just as a line within the gospel of philip 
And I took that, I wrote it on a little piece of paper, I put it over my drawing board, and I didn't even understand what it meant. And for years, I was just puzzling over, enter through the image, enter through the image. Well, it was really when I had my transformational experience uh, at the age of 33 that I entered through the image is I was able to meditate on a painting and the painting became this doorway into the visionary realm. And I was like, ah, now I'm starting to see a deeper level to these texts. Mm. And now I'm going to take another step for, uh, which is, uh, we talked about how entheogens and psychedelics can change your perception of the world. So with ayahuasca, which is probably the one of the strongest uh, vision-inducing substances, plants that you can experience, mm -hmm. I was in this realm of pure vision for about six hours straight and it was hard mm. it was hard because i became aware that whatever thought whatever feeling was rising up inside of me was manifesting itself in front of me as a vision and including unconscious as well as conscious you know and and it wasn't uh I've been in lucid dream states before where you can kind of control where you go in the lucid dream state, but this was much different where it was very difficult to navigate that experience. Yeah. And what I realized is I'm in a mirrored sphere. And it was the only way I could conceptualize it to myself properly, that I'm in a mirrored sphere and whatever I think appears before me and is reflected back to me. And when you read the Apocryphon of John and the way the creation takes place in the Apocryphon of John, it's very much the same model mm -hmm. that divinity thinks and thinks a thought. And the moment divinity thinks a thought, that thought, that object is materialized before it as an image in the watery light and it's mm -hmm. and and it sees then there's the reflexive act of seeing itself in the watery light seeing itself in that image and <clears throat> this way of thinking which is very unified because whatever you see reflects you uh and becomes an image of you is only experienced i think in these extremely uh mystical states but once you've experienced it you can start to make it a model for the way that you experience the world and so now uh i i continue to be intrigued by this whole idea that somehow those people who wrote those texts had these kind of mystical experiences where uh, everything I see, I see as if it's within a mirrored sphere, Yeah, that everything reflects me to myself. And of course, you have to be careful because when I say me, whatever egoistic mm -hmm. desires and passions and so on I put into that is going to get reflected back to me. So you, 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 you know, the, the me I'm talking about here is, is uh, I have to be very careful whatever I put into the mirror sphere will eventually reflect itself back to me in some shape and form. Uh, so that's my way of 
understanding the Gnostic texts now, and, and as I'm saying is, they're just articulating for me what my experience was. Mm -hmm. And uh, I feel an intense sympathy with their world outlook because it explains to me so much of what I've experienced in these mystical or visionary states. I appreciate how there's, within your thinking, there's both this reflection of oneself in the watery light, right? As we see at the, in the opening of the Theogony of Apocryphon of John, and then also the entering through the image, because that's the other way images play within the Nagamati text, that we become transformed into the image that we see. Right. You mm. see that in Gospel of Philip, Gospel of Thomas, by envisioning it, that's what transforms you. So going, using that as a portal into the imaginal realm. So uh, that was really interesting to hear. I also wanted to hear you discuss, because um, in addition to Enter Through the Image, you wrote a Life of Jesus uh, Yeshua reimagined through the Nagamati texts. Um, so first off, what brought you to what you've called the Gnostic Q project, right? Mm -hmm. And what was the impetus behind doing that Gnostic Q project first? Yeah, I mean, I mean, as I said, I had studied hermeneutics uh, mm -hmm. at university and Schleiermacher, who was mm -hmm. one of the theologians I studied, who put forth this idea that there was a cue list of sayings that uh, Matthew and Luke had based their gospels on Mark, but also on a cue list of sayings. Mm -hmm. And I like this idea that you have the sayings and then you have the, the story and you need to kind of do both, respect the sayings and also construct the story around them. So when I wanted to write that novel, I was I would needed to respect the texts, which is to say the Nakamadi texts. And uh, I didn't want to get stuck in the kind of dividing it all up and saying, okay, this one is, uh, you know, Sethian and that one's mm. Valentinian and, and so on, because that would have been too much of a maze. So I, I basically respected the corpus, you know, of the Nag Hammadi texts, plus those other texts uh, that have been found, the Bruce Codex and so mm -hmm. on. Um, and then I created my own cue list in the sense that I would say garment. And then I would take as many as I was reading through those books over and over again, creating my own little glossary for the word garment or for the word redemption or resurrection. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and um, and eventually it's, it's interesting how one passage from one text can illuminate another passage from another text uh, and, and bring out its very particular meaning. So resurrection, being a very interesting one because to me i eventually realized that when they're speaking of the resurrection it wasn't this historical resurrection of christ but rather a ritual in which they themselves were probably ascending through the cosmic framework and that way they were experiencing the resurrection you know in a, in a vision and it's a very different way of interpreting that word 
So uh, I constructed this Gnostic cue, as I called it. And then from there, I started to write the novel and trying to respect the mythemes, you know, the mythologems where Christ's crucifixion is seen at least three or four different ways by the end of the novel because the Nagamadi text presented in so many different ways. And um, the, uh, the other thing I wanted to emphasize is uh, that what I realized while writing it is that the Christ, which I grew up with in my Catholic tradition, was very much a redeemer, was very much a savior figure, mm -hmm. uh, sacrificing himself for our sins. And in the Gnostic texts, he's more of a revealer, that, that his fundamental function is to reveal. And, and when I got that, it was, it was foundational for me because uh, I, I realized that, you know, the crucifixion, how do you interpret that fundamental event? Well, mm -hmm. it relates back to Genesis. And then what did they do? They reinterpreted Genesis to reinterpret the crucifixion. You see what I mean? That, that um, once you reframe Genesis and what sin is and eating this uh, fruit of knowledge, you know, uh, that if eating from the fruit of knowledge is not a sin, then how do you, that, that forces you to reframe the crucifixion as well. And so, the, so in the end, my novel emphasizes the visionary or revelatory aspects of uh, this Christ figure. I also do tend to differentiate between you know, Jesus or Yeshua mm -hmm. and the Christ, you know, that, that um, I see Jesus is very much a man. The Christ is very much this uh, figure that existed in the upper eons before the creation of the material world. And so the, this Christ descends into Jesus uh, as part of the novel, as part of the baptism, actually, like during the moment of the baptism, that's when Christ descends into Jesus. So, so yeah, that you end up um, taking the traditional story and adding new layers, new levels, new, new, uh, which is what exactly what I was kind of looking for in those early readings of the non-canonical texts is the, the, the heretical sides to the Christ that allow you to see in a different, have a different perspective on what that story is about. You brought up an, the resurrection. Right. And not just Christ's resurrection, but the idea that the resurrection was what amounted to a preparatory ritual for what occurs after we die, a sort of navigation through the spheres. And there's different ways in which that's framed, depending on if you're talking about Sethian texts, Valentinian texts, they, they use different language around that. But it's very much a mapping of what occurs after you die. And I know you were reflecting earlier on death, and I'm sorry to hear both about your brother and your mother. Um, so I'm curious, first, having read all these afterlife visions, uh, do you have your own, I mean, I, I guess there's no gentle way of framing this, your own experience of these realms or something that occurred within you that uh, 
lead you to think, oh, I, like the Gnostics of old or like the Hermetists, have experienced what will happen to the soul after death. Mm. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> it, it, it comes back to the mirrored sphere that mm. uh, you, now that we're alive, we're in the body. And because we're in the body, we have our senses and we have our feelings which uh, have to pass through linear time in order to become manifest. But I believe that once we pass over to the other side, we still have our consciousness, but now we have our consciousness in those envelopes that we were familiar with from our lifetime. So let's call it the emotional body. Let's call it the mm -hmm. physical body. But those are really constructs, mental constructs. And a lot of traditions from Tantrism in the East to these Gnostic traditions and Hermetic traditions in early, in the early stages of our culture, try to formulate a, a cosmos, a worldview in which you know that which is above is that which is below. In other words, uh, the cosmic framework. If we can understand the cosmic framework. We can also understand the energies that are operating here below in our emotional and physical bodies. And what happens, you know, in Hermeticism and, and many other traditions is that you they interpreted the cosmic framework as basically seven visible planets plus the imperium of the fixed stars. And then the uh, material world was the, the ether holding in the fire uh air water and earth it, it, you know and that's the whole cosmos you have the five material realms and the seven uh cosmic realms which tend to relate to uh the deities and those deities tend to relate to passions and i and so i call these the passions of the soul that basically Venus relates to desire and the passion of the soul that's desire. Mars relates to anger and, you know, the courage of, and there's, uh, that's something else. There's positive and negative characteristics associated with each, but uh, I don't need to map them out precisely. Let's just say that there are seven passions of the soul and that there are five elemental parts to the body. And so now we have our conceptualization, our map, you know, now we have our uh, way of understanding the mirrored sphere, because what I'm talking about is you are here in the middle of, you know, your body is those five spheres within spheres that mm -hmm. I just discussed, earth, air, fire, and water, and your emotional body is influenced by the planets above as as this constant uh shifting of of your passions desire anger other things like that uh then of course the um apocryphon of john for example says yes there's those 12 but those 12 are simply the material reflection of the invisible higher 12 eons and the invisible higher 12 eons of the mind are 
understanding, memory, grace, form, and they go through, you know, a whole list of which Sophia wisdom is the last, but that mind uh, has its own mirrored sphere of the 12 states of mind that are described in the Apocryphon of John. So, so now I've got this cosmos, <laughs> which has uh, five material elements, seven passions of the soul, and then 12 states of mind that uh, give me the, the structure of both uh, without and within, because each, at each level, uh, it, it, it has a very human component, you know, and it has a more cosmic component. So I believe that this whole idea is when you leave the body and you are a consciousness, you need to reorient yourself in time, in space, and so on. And so they were teaching how to do that by giving mental maps, you know, mm -hmm. by giving... Uh, and mental maps based on something fairly concrete, like the structure of the cosmos and the body as they knew it at that time period and the soul. And so, um, so now you you can navigate, you know, now you can say, okay, and, and the cosmic ascent, you know, as, as they describe it, um, is going, you know, you're leaving behind the garments of the body. So let's say there's five bodily garments that you're leaving behind. And then you're taking off the garments of the soul, the seven soul garments that are the seven passions until you can reach to that higher level, which is pure mind. And within mind itself, you then have to free yourself really of those conceptual uh, garments that you have, which are things that, how can I say, we, it, it, it's entering through the image, you know, to, mm -hmm. to remove the garment is to, so to speak, pass through it, right? Mm -hmm. And so you move through these higher states of mind until you're free of them all. And then you are one with uh, divinity at the source and origin of the cosmos. And that is the moment, that is the moment of revelation, the moment mm. that you're striving for, the gnosis. Um, and you can then um, use a whole bunch of beautiful symbols and metaphors, or how can I say, use the image language to describe mm. that experience, which is as a, as a wedding, as a marriage, as the marriage of Christ and Sophia, and, and so on, to, to, uh, to describe that, that mystical experience. So... I, you know, I think we, it's known that the mystery traditions in ancient mm -hmm. Greece, like Eleusis, uh, was practice for what will happen to you in the afterlife, to prepare you for the afterlife. And definitely in the Egyptian tradition, the priests over, uh, well, thousands of years were mapping out what they considered to be the afterlife territory, the 12 gates that the boat uh, would pass through and so on. So the Gnostics were doing something similar. They were, they were mapping it all out, you know, mapping out the, the afterlife territory and now putting it into a Christian context. That's where it gets kind of 
interesting for me is you know putting it in the mouth of christ and and christ is saying uh in the dialogue of the savior for example you know when you come upon the first archon be ready <laughs> do not yeah. fear you know that uh, and so you know but here, you also here, need yeah. to learn all their names so that <laughs> yeah. you can have power over them and yeah, yeah it's, it's yeah. very meticulous <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it, it becomes meticulous, and, uh -huh. and uh, in that, but all those traditions were, you know, yeah. the the even the Egyptian tradition and so on. It was so complex and so rich with passwords and magical words, mm -hmm. and but uh, that's where my study branches off into theurgy, and mm. theurgy with all the different, uh, not just words but sounds. Mm -hmm. you know that they use so the vowel sounds and the consonant sounds and 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 i started to realize that this is not just fun and games that that if you really are in a highly elevated mystical visionary state and you like a good buddhist you suddenly go om mm -hmm. and and you intone this very deep tone that's going to have a profound influence on your inner state because your inner state is what's constantly influencing what you're experiencing in the visionary realm and and so navigating is really about having posture having breathing having syllables that you can intone in order to i can't say control it you know yeah. because you're moving through it but you but but to help you to move through it to help you to navigate uh through those visionary realms and so all of this ancient lore is there as if they were practicing these things and we're kind of going, oh, now I understand, you know, what those theurgists were going on about uh, and those Gnostics with their uh, nomina barbara and these other mm -hmm. kind of uh, expressions that we use to describe these bizarre vowel sounds, you know, like uh, gospel of the Egyptians mm -hmm. is the perfect example. So, so yeah, I, I feel like with experience and time, I, I've come to understand better through visionary states what kind of visionary states they were experiencing with mm -hmm. the soul ascent and, and with the rituals that they were constructing to to prepare you for the soul ascent. Yeah. So first, thank you. That, that was so rich and interesting. Uh, I wanted to just drop a little anecdote here in reference to vowels and theurgy, actually. So in 2017, Rice held a conference uh, called Gnostic America, uh, which was just, you know, Gnosticism in America. And April DeKonick, you know, scholar of ancient Gnosticism, invited a vocalist and a musician uh, who played a variety of instruments, primarily drumming. and basically put these ancient rituals to song. And one of them was from the Gospel of the Egyptians. And so, you know, there's the Nomina Barbara and all of these things. And then the vowels start. And it's just beautiful and soaring. And you just have these very sort of profound, rich experiences just hearing that. And afterwards, Greg Shaw, the scholar of theurgy, who was there, he said, you know, as scholars, when we get to the vowel part, we always skip them. We're like, okay, we can skip to that. Let's get to the, the meat. 
But when you hear it, you realize the vowels are the best part, right? <laughs> the, the vowels are what transports you. It's what brings you from sphere to sphere, you know, to speak metaphorically, right? Uh, anyway, they're, they ended up making a CD out of it. I can I can point you and listeners to it because it is actually really enchanting. Mm. So and uh, you know I, there is a book by um, uh, his name will come back to me, but it's there there are seven vowel sounds in mm. Greek language, and then there's also seven tones in the musical scale. It, it seems too much of a coincidence in a way, you know, that the relationship of, to the seven cosmic spheres, that there are seven vowel sounds, seven musical tones, that that it it, it becomes cohesive, you know, it becomes very much a, a complete system uh, mm -hmm. to move through those sounds. And then, as I mentioned in my novel, The Hidden Passion, which I find find fascinating. If you read Marsani's deeply, mm -hmm. that text, that the consonant sounds are very much related to the body, which makes perfect sense. You know mm. that, you know, is is all of those body sounds which are harsh, but the spirit, the pneuma, is what rises up. You know, through the vowel sounds, and so of course you want to have the ah, oh, e, u, ah, and so on as the the sound of the spirit whereas the sound of the body is very much those consonants yeah mm. so we've found ourselves sort of circling the the uh, apocryphon of john which clearly brings us to the apocryphon chapel project so uh i could set this up a number of different ways but i just want to hear how you came to the idea for this apocryphon chapel um and how do you envision it eventually being constructed and i'll be sure to put a link to the apocryphon chapel and and the whole project within the uh show description yeah well it, it was a number of different factors coming together and one was definitely every time i read those texts i realized that no one had come forth to visualize them in the sense of creating serious paintings for what's going on there. And it just seemed like the perfect, most propitious time to do that. You know, those texts, as you know, came into our culture while well, they were discovered in 45, but didn't really emerge until the 70s in translation. And here we are now, 2020, 2022, 2023, and, and uh, they're still in the process of, of becoming integrated into our culture. And we don't have a visual program to, to experience those texts. And the Apocryphon of John to me is like a core text. It seems to be the one that gives us the beginning, the middle and the end in a fairly clear way. I'm not, um, restricting myself to that text, but I'm using it as a guide. Mm -hmm. And so I do have quite a, you know, I've worked out the program, the, the way that 13 paintings will be laid out, actually 12 paintings in a central triptych. And, uh, and so the passage that leads into the chapel, the, the main area with the baptismal font and the, uh, and the um, triptych, which is like a, altarpiece uh, behind it and then the passage out and so it's really like the soul journey 
through the creation into the baptismal space, which is where ritual occurs, and then out again, which would be, of course, the soul ascent and, and, and the apocalypse or, uh, that happens with the end of the archons and the marriage of Christ and Sophia and so on. So I have a whole program. I have all these large paintings, and I had worked it out starting ooh, 20 years ago, maybe 15. And what happened in the meantime is life took me on another path, which is the creation of the uh, Academy of Visionary Art in Vienna. And so for seven years, because of my relationship to my master, Ernst Fuchs, and to that city, Vienna, and so on, I was kind of called there, as it turned out in the last two years of his life, you know, so I was able to reestablish uh, a, a much different relationship with him, no longer apprentice, but more of like colleague, if I can say that, um, where he was coming into my academy and, and, you know, looking at the students work and seeing how I was carrying on that tradition of the techniques that I'd learned from him and the vision and so on. So those seven years of the academy were surprisingly necessary to prepare myself for the chapel. I didn't realize it at the time. It seemed like a kind of a um, digression or, or detour. But um, basically, I started to understand the, the practicalities of actually creating the chapel, of, of, of meeting all the people that I needed to meet, because it's such a large project that I can't just do all these paintings myself. So I need mm. to collaborate. I need, and I need to find collaborators who are at a certain level that they can genuinely uh, collaborate, you know, which is to say that I have a program, but it's got space. And so people can contribute what they have to contribute. And so I, I frame it in two different ways. Um, when I first met Ernst Fuchs, I met him at the Apocalypse Chapel in the south of Austria. So that was important. He was spending 20 years of his life creating this chapel in the south of Austria on the Apocalypse, you know, and he was filling wall after wall with his imagery of the Apocalypse. And that was my introduction into this whole path that I'm on. He, I worked as his apprentice. Other people who are now my colleagues worked as his apprentice in that chapel. We were told to kind of paint his way, respect his style. You know, you could see that I did this, someone else did that, but it's kind of invisible. What I want to do now is create a chapel where uh, I want each artist that I work with to bring their style, bring their vision, bring their way of doing things into that section or piece or part that mm. that I as the architect kind of design and plan out. Um, <clears throat> so there's that aspect. And then I was going to mention um, Alex Gray and Alison Gray as well yeah. with their Chapel of Sacred Mirrors, because we've known each other now for more than 15 years. And they've come to my academy in Vienna to teach. I've gone to their different spaces in New York to to lecture and teach and we have a good relationship and I have tremendous respect for what they're doing and what I really share with them is what emerged in the final years of the academy which is to say that we had a cultural space uh, and in that cultural space which was 
two large rooms. One was the gallery space on the ground floor, and the other was the temple space, which was somewhat underground. And we put the paintings on the walls, but otherwise allowed people to come in who basically rented the space. But they, those people who came in and rented the space, they got it. They understood mm. what the space was all about, which is soul healing, you know, to, to, to really go through experiences that allow for healing to happen in the soul. And there's lots of different ways of doing this. It could be sound healings or um, women's circles of sharing, drumming. You know, we had so many different exploratory activities. And the Greys are doing something similar in their space, often leading it themselves. Whereas mm -hmm. for me, uh, I just want to put the paintings on the wall and work with other people who are more specialized uh, in the soul healing aspect, in leading the soul healing. And so it'll become a space that has the art, which is very, very important, the art that's evolving um, and evolving through the work of me collaborating with my colleagues and apprentices. That's part of the vision, that, but mm. paid apprentices, you know, that I have to take on apprentices that I actually pay. This is important to me um, so that the circle goes round. You know, I, I was a paid apprentice uh, working with Ernst Fuchs, a paid assistant, basically. Mm -hmm. And that is the way it's always worked between master and apprentice is that the master pays the apprentice, you know. The academy, the student paid, you know, uh, but the this I want to break that structure and 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 I want to pay the student. <laughs> and uh, but I don't say student, I say apprentice, because that person has to be very, very, you know, at a level of commitment where where I, I will pay them for their talent and their work and, and so on. And my collaborators, you know, so who probably would volunteer their time more than is it's worth, you know, like I would still pay them, but uh, I'm sure they would give more than I would ask. And so that's the, the, the vision is creating this chapel. And I'm now in a position, I think, where I wasn't say seven years ago, that I know the people and I know the business side of it because I ran the academy, mm -hmm. that uh, I can probably pull it off. So what's missing at this point is the space you know that um i don't have the clear vision even of where it will be which is strange whether it will be in the countryside whether it would be in the city whether it would be in vienna whether it would be in france whether it would be some other place that i don't know of yet you know that i've been able to uh move around all my life and integrate myself into pretty much any culture and i'm not worried about that side of it so it's more about finding the space the place where it can happen and and making it happen yeah mm. wonderful well i hope you find that space because <laughs> uh and you know the more i hear about the project and seeing the sketches that you have for the paintings that would go on the wall and then seeing, uh, as I understand it, the hall that you have behind you, that's going to be sort of the background either of the walls or in the nave, or is that, is it something separate? No, what I'm doing is uh, I'm making the first painting myself. Mm -hmm. And so that's just what you 
your listeners can't tell, but behind yeah. me is this large painting. It's three meters high and it has what's basically the background, but the background is a kind of mystical version of the chapel itself. And uh, but on top of that, you're going to see the mother and the father and Christ and then the Anthropos and the twelve. Uh, upper eons as these allegorical figures and then Sophia at the bottom so the only way I can make this chapel happen is to just paint the painting the mm -hmm. first painting because that's been the way it's kind of worked my whole life long is you you make the painting and the painting itself takes you on a journey you know, like I had this one painting, Christ Alchemist, with me when I met Aaron Fuchs, and he looked at it and is like, okay, you're going to work with me. And that same painting is the first time I actually entered through the image to the vision beyond it. So mm -hmm. each painting becomes a, a doorway or a step, a, a new movement in my life. And you just have to invest all of your time and energy into that painting and once it's finished, it kind of does its, it will do its work, you know, by bringing me to the next place I need to be. And I can't see what it is, you know, but, but I just understand that uh, once it comes to exist, there's another stage to its manifestation. And that is where it will bring me in, in this, in this path. And so, so I have to make the first painting myself, basically. I'm here full-time working on it. But uh, the vision is then to, to open it up to collaborators and so on. Excellent. Well, I'm sure uh, even if, you know, Lawrence, the ego, doesn't know, your divine double knows, right? So pay attention to your dreams, pay attention to those premonitions. Uh, at some point, it'll it'll spit out, oh, you need to go back to Malta or wherever it happens to be. Yeah, right? that's, I'm glad you mentioned Malta because it's been in the back of my mind a lot lately as another potential space for, for this chapel. And uh, yeah, but uh, I don't want to become fixated on any one place, but thank you yeah. for mentioning that. Yeah, but wherever it lands, it's going to be wonderful. I, I I cannot wait to see it. And just again, going through the architecture, I'm I'm really excited about the space that you're developing. Mm. So um thank you so much. Uh this has been an incredibly rich, far-ranging, and deep conversation. Look forward to talking with you again down the road. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Matthew, for this interview. I I you're one of the few people who I feel like really has the depth to listen to what I'm saying and having that intense experience of conversation and listening and being heard is, is, is a, a true gift. So thank you for that. I hope you all enjoyed that far-reaching conversation. Lawrence and I covered everything from birth to the afterlife, dreams, psychedelics, the imaginal, ancient Gnostic scriptures, all the way up to contemporary art. There was a lot in there. It's very rich. I hope you enjoyed. Anyone curious to learn more about Lawrence or to take in his artwork should go to his website, El Caruana, that's C-A-R-U-A-N-A dot com. 
There you will find a link to the Apocryphon Chapel, which we discussed towards the end of the show. And you'll also find opportunities to read parts of and purchase his books. Henri Colban came up towards the beginning of the show. Anyone, again, listening to this show or familiar with the CSWR knows he is a distinctly important figure in TNT and what's happening here. Uh, if you are unfamiliar or you he is uncharted terrain for you, the best place to start is probably the Man of Light in Iranian Sufism. For those who are a bit more daring, Alone with the Alone is one of last century's, by which I mean the 20th, great mystical texts, full stop. And it's also a genius examination of the imagination of Ibn Arabi, great Sufi mystic. Those who you know, get a taste for philosophical phenomenology and its approach to imagination and dreams might also want to read Eliot Wolfson, specifically through a speculum that shines, one of his early books, and Oniropoesis, a dream interpreted within a dream, which is one of his later books. Neither are easy sledding, but they're all very worth it. Charles Stang's Our Divine Double came up. Lawrence appears to be reading that right now. And that book examines the dividual, or what Kripal calls the humanist too, in the ancient Mediterranean. Another great study of this idea of the humanist too is Gananat Obasekara's The Awakened Ones, which is much more wide ranging in the sense that it goes all the way from Tibetan treasure text to contemporary lucid dreaming. And it's also very long, but very good. I also mentioned that we had a Gnostic America conference at Rice. It was not 2017, though. It was 2018. But time is a solid and not real, so what does that one digit matter anyway, right? In any case, the performance of music from the Nagamati Codices that came up in conversation can be found on an album entitled Gnosis in Spirit and Song. The songs are largely written and composed by the great scholar of ancient Gnostic sources, April de Koenig, who is a professor at Rice University and my doctor motor. The performers on the CD include Sonia Buzaskis and Craig Hostkild. I hope I'm pronouncing those correctly. You can find that album streaming on any of your platforms of choice. Thank you again to Lawrence for his time and a very rich conversation. We should be back with another pair of conversations within a few weeks. Until then, stay weird. Stay weird.